This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I had an opportunity to meet with a very high-level chief technology officer in one of the military branches. When I walked into his office, one of the first things he said to me was, you know, I have shoes older than you in my closet. You know, what what are we going to talk about? Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello and welcome to this week's episode featuring a trailblazing woman in tech who's had an extraordinary career at Microsoft. Yes, indeed. This week, we're excited to bring you a great conversation we had some weeks back during the coronavirus shutdown, but before the Black Lives Matter uprising, with Mitra Azizirod, who's Corporate Vice President of AI and Innovation Marketing at Microsoft's global headquarters. And Mitra's been at Microsoft for 28 years, although when she joined, she thought she'd stay for only two. I bet that's happened to a lot of people. And Mitra's heard it all from the senior defense guy who told her he had shoes in his closet older than she was to hearing all the reasons why something couldn't be done. Exactly. And as you'll hear soon, saying no to Mitra is almost like music to her ears as she knows she's onto something. Oh, I love that. In this episode, you'll learn how it's almost an accident Mitra got into tech in the first place, given she studied and wanted to work in international relations. What it was like being chief of staff to the CEO of Microsoft and why she turned the job down several times in the first place. Imagine that. Why she's never taken anyone's advice and the secrets of innovation that she's learned from working on the cutting edge of technology. Exciting stuff. So without further ado, enjoy this episode with the forward-thinking and very persistent Mitra Azizirod. Well, Mitra Azizirod, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be with you today. Well, we are too. And where are you speaking to us from? I'm speaking to you from Woodenville, Washington, uh, which is about 20 minutes from the Microsoft campus here in Washington State. Aha, uh-huh. so pretty near Seattle then. That's right. And obviously, uh, I assume that like so many people around the world, you've been working from home and remotely for the last 
couple of months. That's right. In fact, my my last trip, my last flight was to Australia in February when we met, and I've been working from home since that point. Yeah, who would have imagined uh, back in February? It's amazing how quickly the world has changed, isn't it? What we always ask our guests early on is if you met someone for the first time, say at a dinner party, how would you briefly describe to them what you do today? I would say that we focus on where we're going, how we're innovating for the future and what we're doing to get there. It's about ideas and envisioning our changing world. We approach innovation itself in terms of innovation being meaningful for lasting impact. So we do things that are not, you know, stunty, you know, not the sort of stunt approach to innovation. And then secondly, it's to inspire others to innovate along with us. So in support of that, my team's focus is establishing Microsoft as a thought leader in the space of AI and innovation. And that's not only externally, it's also internally. And we identify and nurture and incubate innovations from Microsoft research to create new market categories, totally new businesses for Microsoft, which is super exciting. Wow. What an awesome job you've got. There is this notion of, wow, being able to work with folks in Microsoft Research every day. And it is, you know, also the first time that there is a team focused 100% on upcoming technology and innovation. So when we talk about Horizon One at Microsoft, that's the things that are available today that you can access today. It's on the truck, if you will, today. Anything that's in Horizon 2, which is sort of the next one or two years, or Horizon 3, which is three years and above, we're the only team that's 100% focused on Horizon 2, Horizon 3. So that notion of what's to come and how we get there, that's truly fascinating. Yeah, it certainly is. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will be really intrigued about how you got there. But before we get into that, I'd love to take you back now Right to the beginning, back to your childhood, because I think you were born in Iran. What was your childhood like? No, I, I actually wasn't. My, so my mother is Scottish and my father is Iranian. I was born in Washington, D.C. My mom is first generation. Her parents came from, from Scotland. And so my mom grew up actually in Pennsylvania. My dad, of course, grew up in Iran and they both traveled to D.C., and met each other in Washington, D.C., uh, married, and that's where I was born. So I started in Washington, D.C. in the States. Gosh, okay. Wow, that's an interesting mix, Scottish and Iranian, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it explains a lot, uh, definitely. <laughs> what does it explain? I would say what it does for a lot of people explain is this sort of view I have of very different parts of the world and sort of, uh, you know, as a child, traveling to go to Iran most summers and stopping in different countries on the way and coming back, stopping in different countries, getting sort of this world perspective. And I will say right before the uh, revolution, I did live in Iran for a year. My mom, my dad and I went, I went to the American school when I was in Iran. And it also gave me another sort of perspective. So I think at a very young age, I was very aware of very different kinds of ways of living religions, you know, walks of life that was a great experience. It probably was tough at the time. But now as I look back on it, you know, and I think about my first role out of college at the World Bank and working at Intelsat, I did gravitate towards international organizations as well. 
Yeah, I can imagine that sort of global upbringing. It just gives you a different perspective, doesn't it? Now, if we fast forward, where did you go to university and what did you choose to study? I went to American University in Washington, uh, D.C., and I very much wanted to go to a university where I could have a, a strong component of international relations as a part of my study. And so I studied communications, international relations. And as a part of that, I had an internship where I was doing surveys for a company in in Washington, D.C. And I thought the fastest way for me to be able to compile the data was to do it through programming, you know, through uh, through the computers that we had. I was like, oh, I can go and do this much quicker. Through And, the, and when I say computers, I mean the mainframes that we had in those days. And so I ended up taking computer languages like Pascal and things like that in order to do my major better, in order to sort of use technology to process information better. And when I first applied to the World Bank out of school, out of American University, and that's really where I wanted to go and work on international relations, quite frankly, they saw the computer background in terms of languages and said, hey, we're just starting a computer learning center here. Are you interested in working there? And so when I joined right out of school at the World Bank, I joined the nascent computer learning center and the rest was just staying on that path of technology. Wow. And I mean, what gave you the initiative really to go and learn programming languages when it must have been a pretty esoteric thing to do amongst your sort of classmates studying international relations and communications? Yeah, it was kind of strange for, for because people would see me waiting for, you know, batch processing time because that which that's what you did in those days, it, you know, wasn't your personal computer. So I had to schedule time and I would run into friends of mine that were, you know, it wasn't even really that it was computer science as much as it was people studying electrical engineering and, you know, technical sort of majors like that. And everyone thought that I had sort of changed majors. And I went, no, I'm just looking to use technology to do my own work better. So I think I was always looking for the efficiencies that I could get. And I was really open. And I think also having the aptitude for it, you know, I, it was something that I sort of gravitated towards. And I would say, for me, there's a formula of aptitude married with curiosity. Everybody who sort of knows me knows I love Dorothy Parker and her sayings. And one of her sayings that I love the most is that curiosity is the cure for boredom when there's no cure for curiosity. I love that there's no cure for curiosity. How did you land up at Microsoft, which I think was about 28 years ago? Yeah. It sounds awful when you say it, (laughs) but it's the truth. Uh, So I went to Intelsat, which is the international satellite and telecommunications company, which is also an international organization located in Washington, D.C., and began to look at Microsoft's first a local area networking product, which was called Landman in those days, which is short for Land Manager. And it was in beta. And I began to see that it would be very useful for Intelsat. And I became sort of very well-versed in, in a lot of ways, more well-versed than the people actually working on it because they weren't trying to get it to work in a real situation. And I gave so much feedback into the product group about what they could do and what would be helpful and here's what works and here's what doesn't, that Microsoft had reached out at that point and said, hey, are you interested in coming and working for us? And at that point, there was a networking engineer position. It was a new kind of position in the field. And I took that role and that's how I I came to join Microsoft. 
1992. And I thought I would stay at Microsoft two years. And of course, now it's been 28 years. Well, and clearly from looking at the types of roles that you've done at Microsoft, it's because you've had lots of learning opportunities because you've done lots of things. Yeah, absolutely. I would say this sort of notion of Number one is I think fear is a great motivator. And for me, in terms of sort of crisscrossing, not only, you know, before I got to Microsoft, it was like, hey, how can I learn? How can I try different things? Once I got into Microsoft, and the reason I have been here so long and crisscrossed the company, both in field and at corporate, is because I always wanted to do the next job. And the next job needed to be something where I was almost afraid that I couldn't do it. So embracing fear for me means embracing growth. And I, there are people that think I'm crazy in terms of how I approach that because it really is very much on the edge, but it is a great motivator for me. And so the more that it pushes me into an environment of discomfort, quite frankly, I'm very comfortable with being uncomfortable, the better. And so that's how I approached it. That's really, really interesting because that's where we say most of the growth comes from. But many people really shy away from that feeling of discomfort. How have you got yourself comfortable with discomfort? Yeah, to me, there's a difference between resiliency and perseverance. And even my teams today and anybody that I've worked with in the past would tell you, I talk a lot about resilience and perseverance. To me, resilience is about thriving in situations where there's lots of obstacles and going into something brand new, you have to go into it knowing, wow, there's going to be a lot of things that I'm not even aware of that are going to become blockers in this. You just expect it. And the resilience around that is, do you have the ability to bounce back from that? So is the fear debilitating in that way? Or is the fear a motivator in that way? And I think if you're motivated by fear, you should also probably have a pretty high threshold of resilience. And resilience to me says, hey, I'm going to thrive at this at some point because I have this ability to bounce back in a learning situation. Because if you're learning, you're going to fail at points and you have to be okay with that. And it's less sort of maybe celebrating the failure as it is celebrating the learnings that you get from it. Mm. Then secondly, for me, perseverance is about doing that over and over and over again, because every time you change a job or every time you're learning something new, something I say to the team a lot is, you know, hey, we're just fighting to live another day. You don't have to get it all done and understand it all perfectly today, but you do need to at least do enough to live another day and learn more and take on more. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, it makes me think that in today's situations for many people, Many people are facing probably some of the most difficult leadership challenges, contexts they've ever experienced in COVID. You know, Greta and I have spent this week, in fact, talking with lots of leaders who are quite frankly struggling with the big decisions that they've got to make or the decisions that have been made and the consequences of those decisions. When you think back to your career, what circumstances or challenges have really made you learn the most? And can you talk a little bit about that particular challenge? Yeah, you know, I would say that there have been a series of, of quote unquote firsts that I brought into to Microsoft. And I would say every single one of those examples, and I'll touch on a few, is where 
I had the ability to sort of either innovate around how we would do business differently or around new categories, you know, all those things that sort of flow into the role that I have now, but started very early on. And I think I was the first female chief technology officer in the in the company for the East region. And I had first started out in public sector in the in the federal and intelligence communities within Microsoft and Washington, D.C., and had an opportunity to meet with a very high level chief technology officer in one of the military branches. When I walked into his office, one of the first things he said to me was, you know, I have shoes older than you in my closet. You know, what What are we going to talk about? And so hearing things like that and saying, okay, that's okay. That's cool. We'll, we'll, we'll create a relationship over time. And again, there's that resilience and perseverance and that, hey, that's an interesting way to start a meeting, but, you know, we can bounce back from this. And being first in that role, I felt a lot of responsibility to do really well for those that would come after me. And so not taking anything super personally in that in in that regard was super important. And I was also the first person to move from a purely technical position into running our US federal business as a sales marketing and consulting manager that had never happened before. It was only people who had had a sales, a software sales background before. And coming into that was a first and saying, wow, you know, how do we go from where we are, which was in sort of low hundreds of millions uh, business into, you know, multiple billions in those days, you know, presenting to, to Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer about what I saw in the government business and what we needed to do and was successful in that. And that actually laid the foundation for a lot of what our government business was built on after that. And I did that as an engineer without much support. I will say my boss at the time was like, hey, your job is something different than this. Why are you also doing that? And so there's this perspective of, hey, I can do that, but also help forge new areas of business for Microsoft. And that became something that really became a part of my reputation in the company, which is a series of firsts, maybe seeing things that the others around me weren't readily seeing. I was okay to take the first no, the second no, the third no, and still come back. There's that resilience and perseverance again, if I really believed in it. And those sort of things have become, like I can look back and say, wow, that's a legacy. Well, that's quite the the quite story, and I have to go back, Mitra. Do you remember what you said, or have you since thought of a great comeback to the military chief who said you that he had shoes in his closet that were older than you were? You know, I, I I just actually with a smile on my face, you know, I said I'm sure that you do. The good news is I'm here to talk to you about new things, you know. So yeah, it, I, and it was. I mean, it, I think part of it, quite frankly, was being a woman, and then the second thing was actually my age. And so, which you know, when I started at Microsoft, there was definitely a two in front of my uh, my age. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was uh, you got promoted to be the chief of staff for the then CEO of Microsoft, Steve. Former, what was that like? When the opportunity with our CEO at that time had come up, that was another one of those instances where I had 
declined the role several times. Not only was I happy doing what I was doing, but that was the least of it. And I think on the third time that I had declined, at that time, one of um, our leaders of, of the U.S. sales organization had come to me and asked me and said, hey, you know what, this is the last time we're going to ask you, but I've been asked to ask you again if, if you would uh, consider moving, you know, to Redmond and in this position. And I and I said at the time, you know, I think it's interesting that no one's ever asked me, you know, why I'm declining. It really doesn't have anything to do with the career. It has to do with family and my child. And really what would make a difference is if someone could talk to me about educational opportunities for my child in the Seattle area, what would make a difference for me is if I can find something of equal or better quality, then I could at least consider it. But no one's asked me that. And it seemed like that opened the gates in a big way because the next day I got a call from somebody at the University of Washington who was going to work with me as an educational consultant to see if, you know, I could take a trip up to Seattle and see if something would work out for my son. And what I learned at that time was, you know, there's sometimes an assumption that people will understand, you know, that you've really thought something through and there's And it's not always about the next move in your career. And I think particularly for women, very often we take such a holistic approach to the family and what's good for the family at large before making moves like that. And sometimes that's not considered or even proactively broached. So that was one aspect of it where there was a great learning. The second one was everyone counseled me not to do that not to take that role because it was leaving an organization where we had grown it into, you know, multiple billions and large leadership, you know, of 500 people. And I was actually going to work as an individual contributor for our CEO at that time. And everyone thought the optics of that, quite frankly, would be bad for my career. And I did it anyway. Uh, number one is I don't have a three to five year plan for my career. I never have. As I said earlier, it's there's my curiosity and my eagerness to learn. And I really wanted to learn how Microsoft does business and how we scale globally. And I thought there was no better opportunity to do that. And in my famous words, I thought I would stay in at corporate for two years And now I've been up here almost 17 years. Yeah, and really interesting, your observation that they, at the time when they were courting you to move to Seattle from DC, that they didn't ask why you were turning down the opportunity. And I I guess that's really relevant to anyone today too, isn't it? That sometimes we can't assume that people understand the reason for our yes or our no, and it can help if you're on the receiving end of the yes or the no to ask why. And if they don't ask why, and you're the, the giver of the yes or no, that you explain why. Thinking about your role today, and, and you've already touched on some of the amazing uh, innovation that you were able to introduce in your previous roles. But, you know, today you have, you know, one of the sexiest job titles on the planet, potentially, you know, sort of AI and innovation, corporate VP for AI and innovation and uh, marketing at Microsoft. You know, what lessons or principles about innovating successfully have you gleaned along the way? For people who have joined my team, I've always said, hey, this is a team that writes on a blank sheet of paper. Writing on a blank sheet of paper is all about, you know, taking risks. It's about trying things out. It's about incubating and experimenting with things. It can be experimenting with different ways of, you know, business models with different audiences or different 
kinds of products. And I think there's this notion of being okay to understand how to disrupt. What does it really mean to disrupt? What is a durable value proposition? You know, not something that's going to disrupt and, hey, for the next six months, that's pretty exciting. That's a stunt. But how you disrupt and have innovation for meaningful impact, meaningful, lasting impact. Our goal at Microsoft is not only internally for us to help innovate faster and make it accessible and bring it to market faster. And based on those learnings, we can also help our customers do that. And so, you know, really championing innovation from that perspective is a super important part of of what we do. And I think being the first time that Microsoft Research has had a team that's been focused with them around the business, around the marketing of it and the product management of it, it really has opened up a lot of avenues, even for them, because you'll be dealing with a lot of folks that are very academic and saying, hey, there's the purity of the product. And then we'll bring a a, a bit of a a structure in to say, gosh, and this is how we could take it to market and really disrupt and help our customers make this innovation accessible to them. But really, the important part is how we enable our customers to innovate on top of the innovation we bring, because we really think the next breakthroughs are coming from companies and organizations and startups like theirs, not just technology providers like us. Yeah. So it sounds like um, if I was to paraphrase that you and your team are the bridge between, for want of the better word, the geeks and the boffins at Microsoft who are really exploring the, the technological advances and you're helping translate and work with them to adapt what they do that will fit and be fit for purpose to innovate and change things meaningfully in the business environment or the government environment. Exactly. In any environment, whether it's to transform an entire business or quite frankly, whether it's around tackling society's toughest challenges. And as I said, we focus on AI for good on our team as well. And so it's all the way from business to society. And what excites you most about AI looking ahead? I'm the most excited by the way that AI is being introduced to amplify this great human ingenuity, these ideas that people have around AI for good. And so when I think about what we're able to do around sustainability and AI for Earth and talking about the first sort of Earth supercomputer and what we can do around those things, we're very excited about you know, the future of computing around being able to store data in things like glass. You know, there's so many areas where we're able to impact, you know, the regular life of of individuals for the better. And when I think about the conservation of species and animals and what we're able to do with AI to sort of track and uncover more whale sharks in the last couple of years than in the last hundred years using AI, or even in Australia, the work that we did around sea dragons and being able to tell from their markings, you know, AI allows for this non-invasive way to actually help with species conservation. And that's probably where just my most personal passion and excitement around AI comes to play is to seeing how species earth conservation evolves through the use of AI. That's so exciting, isn't it? It really is. And I know that you're also keenly aware and focused on the potential downsides of AI as well. But really, when you think about 
optimistically about where AI is going. It's just, it's incredibly exciting. It's so clear that technology is going to be at the heart of everybody's careers really going forward into the future. If you were somebody who was in the commercial world right now and knew that they wanted to get an understanding of technology in order, not necessarily to do the technology itself or to be, you know, building things with technology, but to be asking the right questions and having the right conversations, where would you start in your learning process? Well, I I think there's a, a couple of areas. First, you have to understand what your interest is. What is the place where you have both a deep interest and passion and where you feel that there is an aptitude? And I think if there's something there that fascinates you, again, get curious about that and take steps to learn more about that aspect of technology, because I think it's super broad to look at technology overall. And I think, you know, if if AI is something that interests folks, as an example, you know, because when you think about AI, AI is redefining software now. It's a totally new way of creating software. And so, you know, with AI, software is perceiving the world around it through vision, through speech, through natural language understanding. Let's say you're interested in something like that. Then I think it's important to learn about what is it that AI provides in terms of speech or natural language understanding. And you don't have to be, you know, a data scientist to do that. And I would say even in one regard around AI is um, my team has created AI Business School, which is a free online school around AI that I encourage everybody to go check out. So I would say that's a good place to start for anybody, which is there's AI business school, but there's lots of other things that people can look into in terms of either creating skills, getting certifications, or just reading up on those technologies. And then reaching out to people in positions where it's the area that you want to go into and and looking for mentors who have had that experience. And I think one of the most important things for mentoring is not just how does it feel to go into a different path or progressing your career into a different area, but also mentors that have a life experience of, hey, how did you make a big change in, in your life from a work perspective? Did you go from one area of technology to a totally different one? Or did you go from a job that wasn't really technology based into one that is? And how did you do that? So I I think those would be the steps that I would suggest for anyone trying to get into an area that's new or nascent for them or even nascent in the technology world itself. Yeah, really great advice. One thing we really like to ask all of our guests is Thinking back to your 30-year-old self, what advice would you give her? Oh, yeah, that's a major question. I would say at that point, I go back to something I was saying earlier, because it was super hard at that point to really embrace the fear. As I was saying, you know, fear is a great motivator. I would say at 30, I was super motivated by the fear but I don't know that I embraced it as much as I did as I got older in that I think I paid a real tax, you know, in my twenties and thirties for using fear as a motivator. And so I think saying to myself at that point is this fear motivating thing is really okay, but really learn 
to embrace it and know that every time you embrace it, you're growing. And I think if somebody had said that to me at that time, it would have been a little bit easier. Maybe saved a little bit of angst and stress. Is that sort of what you mean? I do, but you know, you can give yourself enough stress that it can become debilitating. I never reached that point, but I know that that's, that's again, the boundary setting that has to come with it. You know, that you set boundaries in terms of what's an okay level of stress to sort of incur. But I think again, embracing that fear also means embracing that you're going to get a lot of no's. You know, when you really push for something and you're motivated to do things on that blank sheet of paper, that you're going to get no's again, get energized by the word. No, that actually is something I say quite often. If you asked anybody on my team, what I say a lot of is get energized by the word no. And I have been saying that probably for the past decade, but I think I should have known that when I was 30, it would have been great to say, get energized by the word. No. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at the word. No. And Mitra, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, I get asked that a lot too. And I don't think I've ever taken advice I've received. Uh, (laughs) I I can't remember a single time because I'll I'll tell you the advice I always got was so opposite to what I was going to do. In fact, you know, even moving to corporate, as I said to you, everyone told me what a mistake I was making. When I moved from the technology side to run federal, everybody on the technology side, oh, wow, you know, you're, that's a bad move. You shouldn't be doing that. I would say every single time time that I pushed into a world that was very different than the world I was coming from, the advice was exactly opposite of anything I did. So I would say I actually did the opposite. I pretty much ignored any advice that I ever got. Wow. That's amazing. That's really interesting, isn't it? I'm fascinated by that. And actually, you know, the thing is, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, Mitra. (laughs) But I know that, you know, we can't. Yes, that's right. Just on that alone, let alone everything else. But I know that, you know, you've got a very busy day job to get back to. So unfortunately, and very sadly, I'm going to have to bring the conversation to a close. Thank you so much for sharing such amazing insights, insights into what has been a really incredible career and a unique career. And I I love the way that you come at things. Now, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you or more about what your team does or more about what Microsoft does, where should they go to find that information? Uh, that's great. And thank you so much for the opportunity to, to speak with you both today. It's exciting for me to be able to share experiences. So I, I always welcome the opportunity to do that. And if you're interested in things that our team is working on, we go out to microsoft.com slash innovation, microsoft.com slash AI. These are all places where my team puts a lot of the work that we are focused on, uh, makes it available there. AI Business School, again, check that out. Anybody wanting to learn more about AI, and whether that would be an interesting place for them to move forward. And I ha- I'm on out on LinkedIn as well. So my profile is out there, what I've done in my career, different speeches that I've given on innovation and things like that are available there. So I invite anybody to try out any of those sites. Fantastic. Well, we'll put those links onto our show notes page. Thank you. So, well, it comes to that time where we must say goodbye. Thank you so much again for sharing your very unique career. And we really look forward to seeing what you do next, because we're pretty sure that it won't be what everyone's expecting. (laughs) Thank you so much, Fair. Thank you, Major. (laughs) 
I admire Mitra's independent thinking so much, don't you? Yeah, I really do. You know, it's not easy forging your own path, is it? You know, ignoring people when they repeatedly say, don't take that job or that path. No, exactly. I'm not sure that I would have the fortitude and sort of conviction to have done the same thing. It's fantastic, though, because then you're really being true to yourself. I also love how resilient and persistent Mitra is. And that attitude of being energized by a no, it's such a good way to frame a knockback or a rejection, isn't it? Yeah, it so is. And well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned for another mini episode next week, and then we'll be back with another how-to episode after that. Can't wait. Have a great week and stay safe. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.